0: Well, this morning we are uh, jumping into a new sermon series called Bible Mixtape. So the idea behind this is, uh, back in the day, uh, when there was somebody that you cared about or loved or wanted to express some appreciation for, you would gather up all of, in your personal opinion, all of your greatest hits, right? And you'd put them all onto a cassette tape for them. If you're under 30, that was a piece of plastic that had a piece of tape on it that played music, yeah? Uh, And you would hand it to them, and it was this act of saying, like, I love you, I care about you, and I want to give a piece of myself to you. So the idea behind this series is um, as I enter into uh, my last few weeks here, uh, which is a very strange thing to say, uh, I wanted to take some of like my greatest hits of the Bible, like totally subjective, totally my own personal opinion, feel free to disagree, Um, but like these are are my favorite hits and I wanted to put them together into like a a mixtape for a community that I love, that I care about, to offer a, a piece of myself. And you'll see that the, the tagline here is uh, how some of the Bible's greatest hits can help us make sense of the rest of it. And again, this is, this is a really subjective sort of thing, but, you know, the Bible's this strange, complex sort of creature, and um, the passages that we're going to look at are just some of sort of like the anchor points that when I get really caught up in the weeds of things, that if I just take a step back, take a deep breath, settle with these, that these are the, the, the sort of things that help me make sense through the rest of it. Um, by the way, uh, I discovered, uh, as I was a, a few weeks after I had planned this, uh, that like today's language would be a, a playlist, right? Which made me feel really old that that wasn't the first thing that came to mind. So I, I don't know how I feel about all of that. But anyways, so that's where we're headed uh, for the rest of, the, of uh, or for the next few weeks. And uh, I thought we'd begin in the very beginning with Genesis uh, chapter one. So in Genesis one, we read, "In the beginning." And from here, we go on and we see how God stepped into the chaos that existed. That's what Genesis 1 essentially says, that there was chaos. God steps into this chaos and God begins to create, God begins to separate, God begins to bring about order and purpose in the midst of this creation. And then from there on we read, uh, God separated light from darkness, God created the sky and land, God separated the seas and the dry land, God separated night from day, God separated fish from birds, God separated the, the land animals on day six, And then we get to the back half of day six and we reach sort of like the the cataclysmic climactic moment of Genesis 1 where all of this has been headed this whole time but before we read Genesis 1 uh, 26 and 27 let's read what it doesn't say first because I think that's equally as important Uh, so this is not Genesis 1 26 and 27 then God said let us make kings in our image according to our likeness And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created kings in his image and the image of God, he created them. Now we begin here because for the first hearers of Genesis 1, this is what all of the other cultures would have said. This is the, our, our, the, the creation story in Genesis 1 isn't actually that unique as a creation story like there's all sorts of cultures that have all sorts of creation stories around them and most of them would have said something like this but this is not Genesis 1 26 and 27 because Genesis 1 27 says something different and that difference is significant so we read actually Genesis 1 and 27 now here we read then God said let us make humankind in our image is the significance of it. The, the difference is the point, right? The fact that this is different than all of the other surrounding cultures, that, that um, there is this sense that the image of God exists in all people, not just in kings. Um, as author uh, Lisa Sharon Harper notes, the word selim, that gets translated as image, is repeated three times within two verses. Because the ancients did not have bold italics or underlining at their disposal, writers often relied on the power of repetition to indicate the significance of a word, thought, or concept. Selim literally means a phantom. Figuratively, it means representative figure, sort of like an ambassador, right? Uh, this is a bold, even revolutionary challenge on the dominant view regarding who represented God on earth. At that time, only kings and queens were considered representatives of deity. In direct opposition to the prevailing view, the writers of Genesis 1 democratized dignity. What an amazing phrase there. Democratized dignity by redistributing it to all humanity. And humanity does not inherit its intrinsic worth and dignity on the basis of bloodline, financial status, or royal position. Rather, dignity and worth are inherited from humanity's creator, the supreme God, We are made in the likeness of God just as children are made in the likeness of their parents. We are not God, but because we bear God's image, we are worthy of human dignity, love, respect, honor, and protection. See, Genesis 1 would have been revolutionary and subversive in its day because it stands in contrast to the prevailing notion that only kings and queens possess the image of God. And Genesis 1 continues to be revolutionary and subversive to us in our day because it stands in contrast to this idea that it's only the rich, the famous, the influential, the politicians bear the image of God. But the reality is that each and every single one of us, you and me and we and us, we all bear this image of God. That all of us have some sort of innate goodness within us. That all of us carry uh, worth and dignity that isn't because of uh, uh, our socioeconomic status, our education level, uh, our talent, or anything like that. But it's just freely given to us. See, catch this. like The very first word about human beings in scripture is that we are good. So good, in fact, that after God creates human beings, that this is the thing that transfers creation from just simply being good to very Good. Just our simply being here, and the goodness that we possess, the 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 fact that God put a piece of God's self within us has the capacity to take this thing from being good to very good. This is at our core who we are. Like we are created in the image of God, which means that we possess goodness and dignity and worth and value. Now, Genesis 1 seems to like, go to extreme measures to like, parse this out and like, be explicitly clear on who all this applies to. So uh, in Genesis 1, 27, we read, So God created humankind in his image, the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, if you're reading on a paper Bible or in an app on your phone or tablet, notice that there's not like, any sort of like, footnote or asterisk next to the phrase male and female. Because there is often in Scripture, right? Like, so last week we looked at Romans 12. So we'll jump back to that for a second. Here we read Paul writing to the church. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. Again, you'll see a little bit of like an asterisk or a footnote here, and so you drop down to the bottom of the page, and you'll read in the Greek, brothers. Meaning in the original letter that Paul wrote, it did not say brothers and sisters, it just said brothers. And as we continue to experience today, right, there's this assumption that women are left to assume, like, yeah, well, if it says brothers, it includes us, right? But the NRSV, which is a a translation that I I really appreciate, tries to, like, be inclusive with its language. So it says, let's just flesh this out. If he meant brothers and sisters, let's just explicitly say it, right? But notice that this is not the case in Genesis 1, (laughs) There is no asterisk. Like, in a, in a world that didn't include um, females in this sort of description, it goes to extreme lengths to acknowledge both male and female God created them. Meaning that this wasn't some sort of later political correcting, but like, from the very beginning, the author wanted to establish men and women, co-created, co-equal, co-image bearers, full stop, period. Amen. Amen. <laughs> And that's very good news, right? But it's not always very good news for everybody. Um, because some people uh, read Genesis 1, here, and they see these designations of male and female, and they say, like, I don't fit in that. That's not my experience in this life. That's not what I, I, I sense being true about myself. And this passage which seems to want to like hammer down the fact of inherent worth and dignity and value has often been used by politicians and even religious leaders to sort of like cut that sort of inherent worth and value and dignity and um, undercut the testimony of people who say that I don't feel like either of these. And so while like I, I confess that like gender is this very complicated, confusing thing, and then you throw in, like, social constructs in the midst of it. And then, like, you have me as a gendered straight guy. Like, I'm not the best to talk about this. But what I am, like, feel passionate about is, like, wrestling with scripture in a way that speaks to inherent worth and dignity. So I'm going to do my best at that. Uh, a few years ago, I came across an interpretation of Genesis 1 that completely wrecked me. And totally, like, messed with me in a really, really substantial way. So with your permission, I would like to share that with you, and you will never read Genesis 1 again, uh, uh, the same way, again. <laughs> so uh, in Genesis 1, we have uh, the sort of construction that we looked at earlier. Uh, God steps into the chaos, and God begins to separate and bring order and purpose. Light, darkness, sky, land, sea, dry land, night, day, fish, birds, land, uh, uh, men and women. And one of the ways that we see this is that the way that God brings about order and purpose is by creating the world into binaries. We have light and darkness. We have sky and land. We have sea and dry land, night and day, fish and birds, uh, sea animals and land animals, men and women. But people began to look at this and they said, when I take my eyes off the page, I don't see a binary anywhere. <laughs> yes, we have light and darkness, but we also have like everything in between. right? We have day and night but we also have dusk and dawn. Like, what do we do with this like, sort of in-between? They look and they say, yeah, we have land animals. Or we have dry land and we have uh, sea, but we also have things called wetlands and marshes. <laughs> they say we have land animals and we have uh, water animals, but we have the things like the platypus. What do we do with all of this in-between, right? And people began to say, like, perhaps like, if creation itself isn't a binary, perhaps creation is meant to be understood as like a spectrum. And like this is the way that God brings about order is by putting limits on these things and creates everything in between. And if this is true with the rest of creation, could it also be when God created male and female that it's also this sort of spectrum? And again, I I recognize I'm the least qualified to speak into this. But when politicians and other religious leaders want to take a text that seems so doggone bent on speaking to the inherent dignity and worth of every single human being and use it to undermine that, this feels like a place that we as the church need to step into. And so if you, uh, your experience is that like, this label of male or female does not work for you, that doesn't reflect your experience, despite what politicians, despite what um, other religious leaders may say, This text speaks to your inherent worth and value, and that you also possess a piece of the image of God within you. Amen? So up to this point, um, we've uh, wrestled with the implications of this for uh, us as individuals. Um, But does this have anything to say about the ways that we interact with others? Of course it does, yeah? So uh, if you're a parent, imagine that one day uh, a child, one of your children comes down the stairs and says to the other one, hey, I'm like mommy and daddy, which makes me special, and you aren't. First of all, that's going to break your heart, right? <laughs> but second of all, you're going to be like, that's ridiculous, right? <laughs> it's ridiculous because like you share the same parent, yeah? And because you share the same parent, like there's a... a, a there's a, a similarity among you, right? And that similarity among you creates some sort of like similarness, right? It creates a sense of like like familialness, a sense of caring, a sense of belonging, a sense of love. And if this is true among like biological parents, earthly parents, like isn't this most certainly true among our heavenly parent as well? <laughs> I've never actually explicitly heard somebody say, I'm like God and you're not, or I'm like God and I, that makes me special and you're not. But this is so much the motivation and the energy behind all of the ways that we break ourselves and break others, right? I'm like God, that makes me special, you're not, so I can abuse you, I can um, hurt you, I can do all of these nasty things to you. And I think God looks upon that and says, that's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> There's a similarity that exists among us because we have a, a, a shared sort of sort of heavenly parent. And that's meant to create a sense of like familialness among us, a sense of caring, a sense of belonging, a sense of love. Which means like, if I'm created in the image of God, then of course you also are created in the image of God. See, Genesis 1 speaks not just to like our posture towards ourself, but I think Genesis 1 speaks to our posture towards one another. And I think the posture that Genesis 1 is like encouraging us, begging us to step into, is one that says that the image of God in me sees the image of God in you. That there's a piece of God within me, that there's this inherent goodness and worth and value and dignity, and that exists also within you. And if I can tap into the goodness that exists within me, that perhaps I can also see and uh, acknowledge and honor the goodness that exists within you. If you've been around here for a while, you know, like, we we spent a whole series a number of years ago kind of sitting with this idea as we looked at, like, the the radical diversity in the world around us. And we said, like, not in spite of the differences in the world, but, like, in light of the differences of the world, like, there's this beauty. And God invites us to see that and honor that within one another. And this became, like, a really important phrase in the midst of that. Important enough that, like, I included it on my Bible mixtape here for you. So, um... For the last seven years, uh, I've lived here in Northeast Ohio, which means that in the fall during college football season, I feel a bit like an exile. Um, and thank goodness for Darren uh, across the street because, like, you know, there's some camaraderie there. But uh, what, what happened slowly over, actually rather quickly over time, was like that uh, isolated feeling that I had in the fall became like anytime I saw somebody wearing a Notre Dame hat or a Notre Dame shirt, I would like try and get their attention and be that awkward sort of like. When you, you make eye contact? And I'd give them a nod or, or a fist bump and be like, go Irish. And this thing happened within them most of the time. Like They would like light up and they'd be like, oh, yeah, 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 right, right, right. It was like something within them like sparked. And like there was an instant bond between us, so much so that it became a really awkward thing throughout the rest of the grocery store. We'd be like, what's up, bud? You know, like we're, we're instantly best friends, that sort of thing, right? And if this is true, like, with something as insignificant as college football, I think that this is also true with something as significant as, like, being a human being. And I think that, like, this is sort of what we're called to do as humans, to, like, recognize this peace within somebody else, to recognize this peace of God within them, this goodness, this worth, this value, and to... You know, say go go be in a human, right? (laughs) To call that out within them because that, that awakens something within them that sees their own worth and value and it creates that bond between you. Like, this seems so important that, like, this is on the very first page of Scripture. That, like, if we can get this right, like, this has the power to allow us to, like, stay on the trajectory that God intended for God's good creation. But I think that this also has the power to be like something like a course correction when that trajectory gets skewed from time to time. Because catch this, like if we get this right, if the image of God in me sees the image of God in you, then this means that you are no longer a commodity for me to exploit. If the image of God in me sees the image of God in you, then this means that you are more than just an object for my gratification. If the image of God in me sees the image of God in you, this means that you are more than just a threat to be eliminated. And if the image of God in me sees the image of God in you, then that means that you are more than a means to the end. But if the image of God in me sees the image of God in you, then that means that I can see like the spark of the divine within you as well. If the image of God in me sees the image of God in you, then I see you as a human being (laughs) with all sorts of inherent worth and value and goodness and beauty. And if the image of God in me sees the image of God in you, then I see you as something like a sibling within this family of God. The image of God in me sees the image of God in you seems to have this sort of energy and capacity and power to set us on the right trajectory to live into God's intentions for God's good creation. But it also has the power, the capacity, the energy to be a course correction when needed. So this seems like a really great idea. Uh, How do we move it from just simply being an idea and to incarnate it in some way? How do we take it from just something that's rather abstract to something that we can, like, embody? Um, Well, I'm going to bring us back to a practice that I have used a lot as of late. And it's because there's some significance to it, not because I'm running out of material here at the end, I promise. Uh, And I'll explain why I think it's significant here in just a second. Um, But it's this practice of a breath prayer. And perhaps you're tired of hearing that by now, but, like, I got the microphone, darn it. Like, I'm going to keep harping on it. Because there's something really significant to it. And a breath prayer is essentially like a pairing of words or phrases to our breath. And it's this merging of these words and the spirit and our breath. And it does something within us that, like, is God-like. <laughs> um, and so the way that this could work, and I invite you to join in here, is like we breathe in this phrase, the image of God in me. We breathe out. <sighs> "Sees the image of God in you. Breathe in, image of God in me. Sees the image of God in you. Um, so this can act like what we might call like a formational prayer for us, um, meaning like we do it at set points throughout our day or throughout our weeks, and it like forms us over time. While you're waiting for your coffee, instead of getting on Twitter, uh, what if you just sit with this? Uh, on your lunch break walk, what if instead of popping in your favorite podcast, you spend a few moments just kind of settling settling in on this prayer? but it can also be what we might call like a reactive sort of prayer and here's where we get to the significance of it so uh you're in a conversation with somebody who is spewing out all sorts of like the opposite sort of views on life that you have and you are doing that thing that all of us want to do you are reducing them from a complex human being to a political talking point yes (laughs) we all do it yeah not one of our finer moments though right uh Or what about this? Uh, You're walking down the street and somebody who looks very, very different than you is walking towards you. And despite all of the hard internal work of dismantling the prejudice that we carry within us, you feel it starting to rise up, right? This can be a reactive sort of prayer. And here's why. Our brains, as complex as they are, um, there's a part of it called the amygdala. Um, This is the oldest part of our brain. This is the, the fight or flight part of our brain. This is the part that like issues sirens when you feel like you're in danger, causes the hair to rise up on the back of your neck. Um... But there's another part of our, and this, this part is so, like, fear-triggered, but there's another part of our brain called the prefrontal cortex where, like, logic and rationality and complex levels of thought exist. My understanding is that every single, like, living being has an amygdala. Only human beings have the prefrontal cortex. Like, this is what separates us from the, the rest of the created order. Uh, there's a pastor and spiritual formation teacher named A.J. Sherrill. He notes that six emotions are associated with the amygdala. Fear, shame, anger, disgust, sadness, and hopelessness. The prefrontal cortex generates forgiveness, empathy, listening, and self-control. So don't miss this. When we bypass the prefrontal cortex and live primarily from the amygdala, we exclude some of the most meaningful ways we are called to be human. So when you're in that conversation with that person, and you just are reducing them from a complex human being to their political talking points, that's your amygdala flaring up. (laughs) When uh, you see that person who's very different walking down the street, and that difference frightens you, that's your amygdala flaring up. Do you know how we move from our amygdala to our prefrontal cortex? Do you know how we develop our prefrontal cortex, how we mature it, strengthen it over time? Through uh, contemplative practices like breath prayers. This has a way of like not bypassing our prefrontal cortex, and it has a way of like actually forging like highway pathways from our amygdala to our prefrontal cortex, so that we're not just mere animals, but that we're the human beings that God created us to be. See, like when it comes back to this phrase of like the image of God in me sees the image of God in you, like this is more than just like mere quote unquote spirituality, but this is also like neurology. Like this is the whole encompassed like part of what it means to be human. And this has the power, like there's, there's power behind this to like transform us, to transform our relationships, to transform our interactions and our encounters with others. And I think over time it has the, the power to like transform even the very world itself. See, from the very beginning of scripture, God seemed to believe so much in this human project that God was willing to take a piece of God's self and place it within us. And central then to the way of Jesus is seeing this, honoring this, loving this, respecting this both within ourselves and within others. The image of God in me sees the image of God in you as both like this fundamental foundational prayer or truth and something a bit like an aspirational prayer. <laughs> um, and so as we uh, give ourselves to this foundational fundamental truth and as we do our best to like live into this aspirational prayer, We pray, may it be so, among us. Amen.